Dear friends and oh, wait a minute. I've got something for you. Under the present, I'm sure all of you will receive at least one or more of these in the next few days, right? Christmas presents. And very soon, if not already, the colorful wrapping paper and the pretty bows will come off and the carpet will suddenly turn this most amazing colors of red and blue and green and sparkles. But then what do you have? I mean, after the wrapping's all open, what do you have? I remember as a child, and especially when my children were growing up, that there was always at least one or two or three presents that never made it to dinner time. Right? They either broke or they were eaten. Their joy was over very quickly. And then, then, and then there's the overly practical gifts. It is actually a rule of the official Beck Stocking Exchange that every stocking must include at least one toothbrush and one toothpaste. It's the law. But then there are the more thoughtful gifts. You know, the ones that you wrestled with when you were playing Santa. In an increasingly comfortable society, where do you get someone who has the means and the opportunity to buy most anything they need or even think that they might need? So what is this Christmas present? It doesn't break. It's not practical in any earthly way. And you can't buy one of these in any shopping mall or any online outlet. Listen to what the angels say. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. A Savior and the good news about that Savior. But having a Savior begs the question, why do we need a Savior? Unlike the brightly wrapped, under the tree, here at church or at home Christmas present, this is an entirely different package. It's a rain-soaked newspaper spilling out of a dumpster in the back lot. A very crude metaphor for the need of a Savior in each of us. It's the news, it's the news that's reported between a husband and wife, the anger that bubbled up between them over the holiday gathering arrangements that left nobody happy. We endure the, the graded teeth of the impatience of the season as we queue up at the checkout line or we watch this endless stream of brake lights come on that go all the way to the horizon. Some of it's internal news. Internal news that nags at our conscience. The homeless and the helpless that we passed by a little too quickly. It's the bitterness between ourselves, between one another, that we let fester, putting me first and letting the rest fend for themselves as best they can. Some of the distressing news seems more, well, circumstantial, but no less in need of redemption. It's the, it's the shadow of illness at your door. Will this be the last Christmas I spend in my house? It's the despair of a first holiday season alone. Alone without a spouse that you enjoyed for decades or a child that was taken right in the prime of life. We are the people who walk in darkness, who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, as the prophet Isaiah told about us. Or as Paul describes us to Titus, suffering with ungodliness and worldly passions. For all of these and more, 
with that newspaper hanging out of a dumpster in the rain. We need a savior. Which is Mike's tonight. And this announcement heralded by the angels, well, quite frankly, overwhelming. Which is certainly an appropriate adjective for Luther's sermon hymn, From Heaven Above to Earth I Come, 15 stanzas? Really? Actually, legend has it that Luther wrote this for his oldest son, Hans, when he was probably about five years old, which would have been 1531. And it became the Luther family Christmas pageant. It was sung every year, and the older children would tell the Christmas story stanza by stanza to the younger ones. Right now, I'd like to point you to the fifth stanza, which we just rung, that repeats in part a message of the angels. These are the signs that you shall mark, the swaddling clothes and manger dark. There you will find the infant laid, by whom the heavens and earth were made. Laid in a manger, because there was no room in the inn, the angel tells us. Notice this triple designation, the three-part sign, swaddling clothes, a manger, no room in the inn. The Venerable Beatty, who was a late 7th, early 8th century English monk, was probably the first one to ask this question. Quote, Can the threefold deliberate phrasing in the Greek of wrap him in cloth, place him in a manger, because there's no place, perhaps anticipate the same threefold rhythm of wrapping him in linen cloth, placing him in a rock-hewn tomb where no one had yet been laid so that the birth and the burial mirror each other. Luke frames his entire gospel with these two paired triplets describing the endpoints of Jesus' life. I mean, it's a, it's a common literary technique, but I believe it is more than just a stylistic flourish on Luke's part. The pairs marking the endpoints of Jesus' three decades of life and work here on earth lend thematic content as well in at least three ways. First, the clothes make the man. Although the clothes make the man may seem like some glib ad pitch by Mad Men's slick Dan Draper, this proverb means that people will judge you by the clothes that you wear. It really has quite an impressive literary pedigree. From Mark Twain to Erasmus to Quintilian to Homer. Twain, who usually gets credit for this proverb, made a quite a fashion comment with his white suits. But the proverb is much older than Twain, probably most notably going back to Luther's sparring partner, Erasmus, who quoted the earlier writers. Oh, not one to be outclassed by classical writers. Shakespeare, who wore his Elizabethan white ruffle with great dignity and pomp, weighed in on the matter, too, through Polonius. Quote, the peril oft proclaimed the man. Hamlet, 1660. And while we often make the mistake of judging a book by its cover or a present by its wrapping, what remains certain is the fact that it is a book and that it is a present, good or bad. It was a real human baby wrapped in cloth strips. 
that's what you did with the poor baby at that time. And it was a real human corpse that was wrapped in linen cloth. Again, the burial custom of the day. Returning to our, our English monk, we hear him write, it should be noted that the sign given of the Savior's birth is not a child enfolded in Tyrian purple, but one wrapped in rough pieces of cloth. The meaning of this is that he did not merely take upon himself our lowly mortality, but for our sakes, took upon himself the clothing of the poor. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Close quote. It was only as a man that Jesus could make satisfaction for our sin. The clothes make, they mark Jesus as true man. Secondly, the, the middle element in those paired triplets, the manger and the rock-hewn tomb, highlight Jesus' state of humility and of exaltation. <clears throat> Some of you might have met my youngest son who was here last week, right? He just couldn't pass up chiding the old man. I went out to the garage to take out the recyclables. Hey, what's the matter with you? You born in a barn? Recalling growing up in Wisconsin winters when that was often heard. But Jesus was actually born in a barn, as evidenced by his crib, a feeding trough for domestic animals. Beattie alluded to the poverty of Jesus' circumstance at birth. We can appreciate his state of humiliation, but that stands in even greater relief when we consider what he left to take up into himself the flesh and blood of Mary to become a man. Jesus gives us a, just a little glimpse of that in the upper room as he prayed to his Father. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He came from the side of the Father and he returned to the right hand of power to rule for all eternity. But the contrast of humiliation and exaltation reaches its zenith in the rock-hewn tomb. Nothing testifies to the temporal nature of our lives as profoundly as does the grave. Jesus took on our flesh that he might die our death. Literally, our death. So the tomb, this particular tomb, stands as testimony to Jesus' flesh and blood humanity, and yet at the same time, its emptiness testifies to his exaltation. As the angel reported to the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. He is, as Paul will call him, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. So these paired triplets of Luke teach us about Jesus' humanity, human and divine nature. They teach us about his humiliation and his exaltation. And third, or finally, the more audience-friendly term, they declare mission accomplished. First there was the swaddling clothes. Then there was the linen burial cloth. And let us add one more verse from Luke chapter 24. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. They served their purpose. 
They covered the body of Jesus as he rested in the tomb. But now a grateful Heavenly Father has called his son from the tomb to glory. John's account. John's account goes into even greater detail about Peter, reporting that Peter saw the linen cloth sitting there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up separately by itself. Everything had been neatly arranged. No room in the inn. No one yet laid in the tomb. Nothing remains to complete your salvation. Unto you is born this day a Savior. You are redeemed. Swaddling clothes, a manger, no room. And then 33 years later, a linen burial cloth, a rock-hewn tomb, no one yet laid there. These paired triplets of Luke's gospel are the answer to that rain-soaked newspaper spilling out of a dumpster in the back lot. They are so much more precious than the brightly wrapped presents under a tree at home or at church, with perhaps one exception. The one I brought for you. So what's in the box? Well, quite simply, the good news of what the angel proclaimed. Not the words from Luke, but the words that Paul uses when he writes to the Corinthians and to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The gospel message that became flesh and blood tonight. Let us then join the shepherds who when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. God has given us the greatest Christmas present ever, a Savior. Hallelujah. Amen.